This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Eric Wargo. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. We begin part two with a discussion around synchronicity as being what Eric considers misrecognized precognition. So Eric, one of the ways we may be misunderstanding precognition is that there is an incommensurate degree of reporting the significant precognitions, of course, because those events impact us. They carry the signal, the meaning, the emotion. Naturally, we're going to disproportionately report those experiences, document them. Whereas dreams about the sink clogging up or other mundane aspects of day-to-day life won't carry urgency. So we end up with a body of documentation that is lopsided, understandably, toward the significant. Exactly. That's exactly, exactly the case. Yes. Yes. Okay. So following on from that, if the Jungian attempt was toward collapsing the time dimension, but the real understanding of synchronicity is in this expanded time dimension, and we look at how synchronicities run through NDEs, contact, paranormal experiences, and it formulates a signaling system, mile markers that people measure their life by, which is to say it's common, for instance, for spiritual practitioners to use synchronicity as a confirmation event. Yep. It's always tempting to regard synchronicity as affirmation from the universe that I'm moving in the right direction. So what I'm asking you is to reframe that for us in what might be a more accurate accounting of what synchronicity is and how we should or should not use it in our lives. Does that make sense? Right. Yes, absolutely. And I I would love to answer this. This, uh, That's what a lot of my forthcoming book is about, actually. There's a section on synchronicity and how to rethink it. Yes, that's how people take it. They take it as a thumbs up a signal that you're on the right track or whatever in your spiritual practice. What the problem with that is that it, the problem with the, the Jungian idiom is that it sort of removes the the, the reason for these synchronicities that removes it to this kind of archetypal domain. That's, that's divorced from our own lived experience, our own, lives and it and it obscures the fact that we're the ones creating synchronicities we're the ones doing it because it's all synchronicity is is misrecognized precognition it's pre it's what ha- synchronicity is what it feels like when we precognitively orient toward rewards in our future and are not aware that that's what we're doing mm. so when we have that reward when we have that coincidence uh, when we have that you know we live an experience that we dreamed about two days ago because we don't lack, because at this point we lack this concept of precognition, uh, a robust kind of cultural framework for understanding that, we will grope for this this Jungian, this handy Jungian term synchronicity, and it's a nice word, you know, it's a it, it sounds all kind of like electricity, you know, it's it's kind of exciting and sounds good, and we'll we'll say that, and we'll assume that this has that this is some higher intelligence orchestrating these experiences, you know, for our benefit, uh, or to send a signal to us or whatever, and not realize that it's our own brains doing it our own, you know, we are, we are orienting, we are sort of 
Uh, one of the metaphors I use is dowsing. We are dowsing for rewards in our future, and we're orienting towards those rewards uh, in the landscape of our future. Mm. And when you have that realization that this is you creating these experiences, it empowers you to learn how to create them on a daily basis. I mean, it's, it's, it's rather than sort of wait for a synchronicity to happen because you think it's a signal that you're on the right track in your spiritual practice, you can actively produce these experiences by engaging in certain practices, meditative, dream work practices, a number of others that, that will generate precognition that will get you in touch with your, your precognitive sort of consciously in touch with your precognitive abilities. I mean, we're, we're all precogs and we're all orienting in the world precognitively, but we simply call it intuition or whatever. We're not aware of it. But once you become aware that it's you, you're doing it, you're creating these experiences, it's, it's, it's very empowering to sort of become a conscious precog uh, rather than wait for synchronicities to kind of validate or affirm what you're doing. So that's the good news of this umbrella of subjects we've been covering. Far from being passive experiencers of random synchronous confirmations which are dispensed from higher powers, which are inscrutable higher powers, the good news is that this can be situated in our lap. We can take an empowered role. We can reliably cultivate an increase in our own precognition and also a better order of understanding them. I love the dowsing metaphor. Ironically, <laughs> one of the things that will probably happen in your forthcoming book when we set up a visual and a depiction of this, this all calls to mind magic, as in bringing experience into accord with one's will. Attractive to a lot of people. It's easy to see how a few increments over from I'm going to do this to get more synchronicities could be, I'm going to have more sex. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get a shiny red bicycle or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Does that land at all for you? Yeah, totally. And magic has always been, I've never been drawn to kind of magic before the last few years because I've, it just, I don't know, it was just, it was kind of alien to me a little bit. And I was, I sort of preferred my kind of Zen, you know, approach. And I was very happy sticking with that. But, yeah, you know, in the last few years, it's become much more apparent that, oh, everything I'm talking about is a kind of reframing of everything that, you know, chaos magicians are talking about. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, we talked about will, you know, I, one of the things that has always put me off magic and the sort of idiom of magicians is this talk about will and intention. I, I don't know what it is. I think it's probably my personality type or something. I'm very much, I'm very just sort of naturally a Taoist. Mm. I mean, if I practice Zen, you know, really deep down, I'm just, I'm just a Taoist in, in that I just sort of, my, my, my comfort zone is letting things happen and watching. And that's, kind of how I feel most powerful in the world, in, in fact, is by not imposing my will. And uh, it's just kind of, you know, kind of the way I've always been. And it's worked mm. okay for me. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not gotten me a sports car, you know, and it, I'm not rich, but, <laughs> you know, I'm, it's gotten me, 
you know, I think a lot of good things in my life. And one of the discover, well, we'll call it discovery insights that I've had over the last couple of years since I wrote Time Loops, it was kind of, there's a hint of it in Time Loops, but I hadn't quite articulated it to myself. And I, I articulated a little better in the forthcoming book. The Time Loops framework really kind of reframes these terms, will and intention. And I'll add, I'll throw a third one in there, desire. That these three things, I believe, and again, this is going to, you know, offend people's knee-jerk free will sensibilities, but I just ask them to indulge me. I think those three things are misrecognized precognition, misrecognized premonition, that will is really misrecognized premonition. We are, mm. what we experience or what we interpret as our will deep down is a a kind of retroactive, retrospective reframing of precognizing our successes. And I think, and I mean that on a, like a moment to moment basis. I, I really am serious that I think that this is, there's almost kind of a new kind of cognitive psychology almost embedded in, in this idea, this kind of, this kind of intersection between what magicians are talking about and what, what I'm talking about time loops <laughs> that will intention the same way, you know, when we, when you set an intention for something, I've got, and I've got so many examples of this in, in my work with some precogs that I work with where they'll set an intention and it, it'll come to fruition, but it'll come to a fruition in a way that they realize that their, their original intention was precognitive of that. It wasn't, you know, there, it was precognition that caused them to have that particular intention and not some other intention. You see what I'm saying? Hmm. So will and intention, and I would, and again, I would add desire to that too. I think that desires are often a kind of a misframing or misinterpretation of precognition of things that we don't even know that we want yet until we get them. They're rewards that we don't know that we wanted, but we precognize that we want that thing. So I don't know, that's a, uh, that's probably sort of sounding obscure, but well, I just think that there, there is a very rich uh, territory here of sort of overlap between what I'm talking about and what, what I think magicians are up to and what they're talking about. And it's just in the last year, you know, on Twitter, I've started inter interacting with, with more magicians and realizing that, that, yeah, there is this, this like real important overlap that's worth exploring. So I'm, I'm, one of my intentions is to read more in, in that area. Uh, you know, it's like I've, I've got piles of books that I need to read, but, you know, I'm slowly ordering, you know, magical books too and trying to understand, getting that, that mindset. Well, there is a fascinating nexus here, an intersection of some gorgeous potentials. I think you're right that there may be even an emerging field. What I'm ruminating on now regarding will, intention, and desire is that it doesn't feel vague. What you're describing is a magnetic operation, as in there's a magnet in the locus of the self sending, receiving, and orienting itself toward the greatest magnetic attraction, which is in alignment with benefits and rewards for the self. So those rewards are a beacon. That all makes immediate sense. Where it gets interesting, for example, for me, is when 
we include even simple systems of psychosocial development, the development of the self. Obviously, the self is not one thing, not one perspective, not just one desire. There are levels of development. There are myriad perspectives within a self. So there's a layered unfolding. But suffice to say that the various levels and layers within one individual can have their own desires, their own needs. So the question I have around this, these various layers of self moving through time is actually an array of magnets, not just one. There's a multiplicity of desires and goals within each identity. And that's where I think premonition and retrocausation could get really, pardon my French, but could be a bit of a mindfuck to sort through all of that in this model. Does that evoke any thoughts from you about that assembly of the self? Yeah, uh, I think you're, you're totally right. I mean, we're not, uh, I think there's a kind of a, there's a tendency in most psychology, especially like psychoanalytic schools to very, to simplify desire and motivation in a, in a way. I mean, we, you may have a few, you know, unconscious and conscious, but, but I, I think it is more like you characterize it. There's just sort of, you know, infinite little, not infinite, but, you know, many, 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 many little, little desires and motivations and all sort of competing mm. in a, in a, you know, very complex uh, organism, you know, where, where we have, you know, there are all kinds of little uh, survival relevant impulses and, and, and needs and whatever, and they're all kind of operating in simultaneity. And yes, I, if, if those are all really time loops, then it's like, yeah, it, it's a incredibly complex picture, but I, and it's why I think that we are actually built of time loops in the, in a sense that time loops are kind of like the four dimensional versions of cells in our being mm. that the, our four dimensional structure is, is really built of, you know, all the way down to the finest level of these causal causally circular structures that I'm for convenience calling time loops. And there's some physical basis for this because even physics says that quantum physicists will describe the, you know, the quantum foam where particles arise from nothing and then sort of collapse together. The, you know, particles and antiparticles arise and they collapse. Well, there's some reason to believe that particles and antiparticles might be the same particle, but just going backward in time, one of them is, you know, and that those are little causal loops. And hmm. so, you know, even on a particle level, our universe may be built of time loops in a sense. And I, I think that that's what living organisms are. They're sort of taking that quantum ability to tunnel to some sort of optimum to tunnel to survival and they're scaling it up they're scaling up these basic quantum phenomena like tunneling and nervous systems are like a further iteration scaling up this kind of orientation towards success and survival so in the in the new book i even have a chapter where i'm kind of like trying to integrate this framework with kind of a more new thought kind of standard new thought framework, which might describe success as a function of mind or success is built on mind. Well, I'm trying to flip that and say, no, actually mind is a function of success. That, that is our intrinsic success as living 
beings that are sort of binding time and, and harnessing this power of retrocausation and, and precognition and sort of scaling it up. And, and the mind would kind of almost be an emergent property within the sort of larger success of the quantum universe. <laughs> Very interesting. I can't let our time run out without getting into one particular fold within these topics, which is remote viewing as misidentified precognition. Remote viewing has had some pretty impressive staying power. It's had periods of waxing, periods of repose. Now we're seeing this interesting moment where DTSA, Hal Putoff, his team of people who had cultivated Ingo Swan, McGonagall, how their talents were enlisted and remote viewing became a tool employed by the government. A very exotic form of quasi-espionage, if you will. You have published very interesting writings characterizing remote viewing as misidentified precognition. I don't think this idea has really gotten out there yet. I would love to hear you walk us through why you think that's the case and how this might adjust our view of what remote viewing is, why it's working when it is working, and what it is not, why it's not working when it's not working. So does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to address this. And I, I will hasten to say that I don't have the final answer on this question. It's more I'm raising the question. And as I'm not the first one to raise this question. Even from the early days of remote viewing at SRI in the 1970s, to bring it back, circle back to Jacques Vallée, you know, he was friends with the folks one floor down doing the remote viewing research, even though he was working on a completely different project. He was working on the ARPANET. But he was having lunch with those guys and sharing ideas. And he would, and this is even in his journals from the period, you know, he would have lunches with, with the researchers and say, well, you know, how do you know that the remote viewer is being clairvoyant, you know, seeing something at a distance? How do you know that they're not precognizing, you know, the feedback they're going to get later? or the, the, They're not precognizing the book where they're going to read about the story of how they, you know, they precognize something to distance, you know, how would you, how do you know that? Mm. And his colleague, you know, and the SRI guys really didn't have an answer, at least not, not accessible in his, in his writings. And they ultimately did some small studies about you know, testing how important feedback was and discovered that, yeah, it's pretty important, but they never really pushed those very far. And over the years, the, you know, the question has persisted, you know, the, the idea that, well, how can you, how can you ever tell the difference between, you know, what may feel like mentally visiting, you know, a site in Russia versus how, how you know, that may, that may be what it feels like to the experiencer, but how, how can they ever know that it's not, they're precognizing, you know, reading about that site in Russia, you know, after the experimenter tells them, hey, good job, you know, which would be a time loop, right? Mm. And one of the case studies that has always been sort of invoked as a counter argument to that idea is a, a very famous case, and Russell Targ writes about it in a lot of his books where Pat Price, the sort of star remote viewer for about a year in the mid-70s, 
he uh, remote viewed this site in Semipalatinsk, Kazakhstan, and described you know a few features pretty uncannily that were that were viewable in a CIA aerial reconnaissance photo that he was shown shortly afterwards. But he also described features that were supposedly only confirmed in a magazine article that came out two years after he died in 1975. So this has often been cited as, and Targ cites this case as a, an example where, well, there's no way he could have received feedback on this because he died before there was feedback available. Well, Targ has often cited this as an example why it can't, remote viewing can't just be precognition of feedback because one of these things that, that Price saw was only confirmed in a magazine article a couple of years after he died, so there's no way he could have received feedback. Uh, so people were continuously citing this case, and I delved into it, and I actually found original session transcripts. It turns out the, the thing that he supposedly precognized that was, that was confirmed in the magazine article was actually not as it was recalled by Targ. He was right. Targ was writing his, his account of this 20 years after the fact. So I think, I think there was, you know, faulty memory a little bit there. Targ is wonderful, by the way. I mean, he's, his, his books on remote viewing are awesome. And they, they were actually a big inspiration for me when I was getting into this field. I hasten to, to say that, uh, but when you look at the actual session transcripts, it doesn't support this idea that Price was seeing something that he could not have received feedback on. All of his, all of the real hits in the sessions were things that he was given feedback on almost, you know, like the next day. So I think a lot of remote, I think this contention that remote viewing could just be precognition is very controversial. I think a lot of remote viewers balk at it because it doesn't fit with their preferred idea of what they're, they're doing. It also doesn't support, I think, the people's preferred idea that this is somehow consciousness that's that's non-local in nature and extending free of the body and so forth. I think there's a kind of wish for that to be true also. And the precognition only hypothesis doesn't support that. It can't be used to support that that kind of metaphysical worldview. So I think there's a lot of resistance to this hypothesis. And at this point, it is only a hypothesis because this has not really been tested that well. And and there's a, one really good way to test this. And I hope that someone, you know, reading my work will will decide, hey, let's go do this. Let's actually do these experiments. And And here's what you would do. You would take, you know, take five of your best remote viewers, put them in a room or put them in separate rooms, whatever, have them remote view a target that's say an hour's drive away, a double blind, you know, so the experimenter doesn't know what the target is, but have it be a location that that's about an hour away. Have them all remote view that target with drawings, whatever. Uh, okay, and then after the session, get them in a bus and drive them to that site for the same way that they used to conduct the the early remote viewing trials, you know, they would have the the person in the lab do the remote viewing, then they would drive him to the site and see how well he did. Um, well, in this case, you know, during that hour when they're being driven to the site, you have a confederate plant a very big and obvious sculpture at that location, and 
then see what what do their remote viewers descriptions correspond to do they correspond to the site without that sculpture or do they include that sculpture and if you do enough, you know doing one such experiment may not tell you that much but doing a lot of experiments where you manipulate the feedback in some way uh, you can do this with pictures you know you know have the remote view a picture but then unbeknownst to them substitute it with a different picture when you're giving feedback you know these kinds of this kind of protocol where you're manipulating feedback would i think ultimately reveal pretty strongly the role of precognition in remote viewing and you know my hypothesis is that you'd find that people are always precognizing what they're going to see later that they're not or i'm sorry they're that remote viewers are are going to see in their mind's eye what they're going to see later they're not seeing in their mind's eye uh, a reality as it exists separate in space-time and there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence for this view just in the psychical literature more broadly sort of first scientist to take seriously precognitive dreams he wasn't a scientist i'm sorry he was an engineer but jw dunn back in the early years of the last century he discovered that this was the basis of of precognitive dreams because he sort of took a forensic approach to his dreams comparing the sort of feedback experiences that he would get like a, a story in the news versus the real event and realized that while well, he was dreaming about the news story he wasn't dreaming about the real event and this this recurs again and again and again in the sort of history of of psychic informal psychic experimentation it sounds so affordable not difficult to run these experiments doesn't seem that it would be terribly involved. I wonder how it has not happened. Do you have any inclination to put together a study like that, or a few, perhaps? If you're already putting together a community of people contributing to the dream precognition catalog, is there anything on the horizon we can look to where these kinds of experiments can be performed? It doesn't sound like much of a hurdle to get there, right? No, but you've got to have at least some wherewithal to do it. I mean, I'm a, I'm super, I don't have the time and I don't have, <laughs> no, I don't have the resources to, I'm like, to do set that up, Eric. Even, uh, yeah, like set that up. No, you're, you're right. I mean, we're not talking anything high tech. Yeah. I mean, I hope someone does it. I mean, I, there, there are people in this field who have, who do have the resources. I'll tell you, I, I suspect that there's a resistance to this idea, both because it, I think, first of all, people right now are very, very gung-ho and wedded to the sort of non-local consciousness idea and sort of anything that sort of challenges that, you know, I'm kind of an outsider to, to parapsychology, you know, because I think the mainstream right now in the field is, is very much towards this kind of omniscient mind, you know, non-local consciousness, uh, limitless mind is what Russell Targ calls it, view. So I think there probably isn't a lot of motivation <laughs> to do it. Hopefully at some point there will be motivation to do it. I, I, I'm sure at some point someone will do these experiments. So I suspect there is maybe a little bit of, of resistance. It also is the case, interestingly, that most of the big names in parapsychology over the last couple generations, in fact, really since, since Ryan's day, the bulk of the researchers have been 
not psychologists or cognitive scientists. They've been physicists and engineers. And, you know, the Rhines were botanists, you know, by training. You know, there's a tendency to want to put these things in a framework that makes sense to a physicist. And things like signal transmission and quantum entanglement and that kind of thing, they would love to put these, put these phenomena in a framework that makes the most sense to those fields. Uh, so I suspect there's a kind of subtle professional bias within the field that is also kind of uh, acting as a, might also act as a barrier against conducting those kinds of experiments. But also there's a third reason probably these experiments have not been done. And that's that I think, you know, what I'm sort of imagining is the kind of experiment that you would run in a standard psychology laboratory, which is always involving deceiving the subject in, in one way or another. But I think that they're, you know, given the sort of close relationship between experimenters and, and remote viewers, and there's a desire, I think, not to deceive anybody. There's, I think, trust plays a big role in in creating the sort of kind of safe space to access psychic ability. I think there are all kinds of reasons why why experimenters would probably be reluctant to deceive their subjects in significant ways. Although I think that the kind of thing where I'm talking about, like planting a sculpture or whatever, you're it's not you know you're not like just doing something like just showing them incorrect feedback you're you're just you're subtly altering feedback in a way that may not transgress those bounds so much but i don't know i, I think there may also be that that kind of dimension going on i mean it's you know it, it, one thing is unmistakable is it's very hard to study these phenomena scientifically there are all kinds of difficulties and unfortunately skeptics just sort of leap on that statement as an excuse you know for why the science is more robust and obvious or whatever, but uh, those difficulties are very real. Are you optimistic about them? Uh, these intrinsic obstacles creating such difficulty in studying such phenomena? Even when we are looking at the seat of the self as a corridor in time, the four-dimensional glass football, that all being inherent in human consciousness, that assembly, every time we get into physics, we're talking about an objective domain, an objective methodology. The subjectivity, the intersubjectivity, really seems to start to fuck with things, as we've seen with great hilarity in quantum physics, in that Pauli effect kind of way, if you will. <laughs> Do you feel optimistic about us resolving and moving beyond these concerns that have tripped us up in this regard? Or does it look messy for the foreseeable future? No, I, I am very optimistic for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that retro cause, I think it's going to have a trickle. It's acceptance of these things is going to have to trickle down from physics. And the thing is, physics is getting there. Uh, there's a there's a lot of recognition that quantum physics is in a crisis. And you're getting... There, there needs to be a new framing. And I think the, the, you know, Niels Bohr was a very powerful personality and he sort of rammed his Copenhagen interpretation down the throats of his students and subsequent generations. But that dogma is breaking down. People are realizing that it's not enough to say just that nature is random on the smallest scales. It just doesn't, it doesn't really wash. And ultimately 
quantum physics is reaching its limit as to what it can explain as long as it's working within that framework. So you're seeing people offering new interpretations, including the retrocausal interpretation. Retrocausation is not a new idea. I mean, it was, this was broached back in the 40s or 50s, but now it's getting taken more seriously. You have more young researchers studying it. Got some, a few experiments that I talk about in my book, Time Loops, that, that seem to demonstrate retrocausation. And best of all, you've got quantum computing, which is on almost a I'd say a monthly basis, there's some new finding in quantum computing about how they're reversing the causal order, or they theoretically can reverse the causal or temporal order of computing operations in a quantum computer. So you could have an output before an input, or you could, you know, uh, the way I, the simplistic way I put it is you can send a message into the past in a quantum computer. And this is being you know, this is this is a technology that is, you know, in its birth, infancy right now. But I think that quantum physics, quantum computing are going to demonstrate the reality of retrocausation in a compelling enough way that other scientific, hard scientific fields are going to be less resistant to to these things. And so then in quantum biology, it's going to okay, if, if retrocausation is real, then this must be part of quantum biology. And then from there, you can go to uh, imagine a quantum neuroscience that, that incorporates this idea. So that's one of the reasons I'm very optimistic. I think that, that we're going to see in the next couple decades, we're going to see kind of, I don't know if you want to call it a paradigm shift, but you're going you're gonna to see movement in the highest echelons of science towards an acceptance of these kinds of ideas in the physical world. And that's going to give more permission to a younger generation of psychologists and cognitive scientists and so on to take this seriously when it comes to human behavior. So that's one reason I'm optimistic. Another reason is we're really seeing a thaw around all kinds of paranormal topics these days in popular culture. I know you know what I'm talking about with UFOs. I mean, this is a topic people are, are no longer making fun of it. And whatever you think of TTSA, you know, you, I guess you do have to credit uh, some of their work for getting this topic taken seriously in, you know, New York Times articles and, and so on. And we're, not, we're no longer seeing the, the flip, you know, X-Files music, you know, takes on UFO, the UFO topic. It's being taken seriously. Same thing is happening, interestingly, with a psychic phenomenon, ESP. Just in the last couple of years, there have been very some interesting examples of this. For instance, there was a really good a New Yorker article about a British parapsychologist, John Barker, back in the 60s. Um, there was a very good, very serious article about him and a precognition. This was in New York, and it wasn't making fun of him or the idea of precognition. It was uh, really excellent. This was about a year, year and a half ago. And then just this past week, uh, a friend of mine emailed me a link to a, a Fresh Air interview on NPR with the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Ayad Akhtar, who has a new novel uh, that just came out this week called Homeland Elegies. And it's uh, sort of a, a, an autobiographical novel where he talks about his dream work and his precognitive dreams, including his precognitive dream of 9-11. And not only is this in a very, very mainstream novel from a big publisher, but you know he talked about this on NPR with the Fresh Air interviewer. 
And there was no ridicule and no you know, sense that this is a, a topic worth making fun of. You know, my my books, my new book especially is try is I'm I'm trying to push a sort of tipping point about the topic of precognitive dreams, at least, to where people can no longer make fun of the topic. And I think that I think it's gonna happen. I think that we're kind of ready as a culture to accept some ideas that that were not acceptable a decade, two decades ago. I think people are more ready to accept some new and different ideas. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually really optimistic that we're going to see movement around this and this, the sort of knee jerk skeptics are going to be, are just going to have to kind of shut up. (laughs) I love ending on that note. It's a wonderful updraft to conclude on. I'll put a link to John Barker's paper, which appeared in the New Yorker, the premonitions bureau. And I will also put a link to Ayad Akhtar. Homeless Elegies is the novel, and we'll put a link to his appearance on NPR. All of that will be in the show notes. Um, by the way, just uh, you mentioned the Pauli effect. I had just been thinking about the Pauli effect right when you said that. <laughs> because when, you're, when your audio quit, yeah. I think I had just talked, I had just mentioned Pauli, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And actually, this happened the last interview I, I, I had a couple of weeks ago, I talked to Leslie Kane, you know? Yeah, she's great. We had a Zoom call and I was telling her this very amazing story about one of the precogs that I work with. And immediately when I was getting to the, like, the really amazing part of the story, she was like wrapped. I mean, she's like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, what happened next? And then suddenly our connection was lost. And, <laughs> but, the, but the funny thing is that this is exactly what happened with the, the precog that I'm talking about when we started working together, whenever, like I had mentioned Wolfgang Pauli or something like that, and then suddenly her computer broke and it took us like a couple of days to reestablish communication because, because her computer broke right, right when I was emailing her about Wolfgang Pauli. So it's like, it's just like Wolfgang Pauli and the Pauli effect are just like this, this constant ongoing theme Whoa. in, in my, in my life. So it was very funny to me, like, <laughs> when I realized that you lost co- connection right after I mentioned him. That's hilarious. That's exactly when it happened. Yep. Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that. That kind of stuff does not shock me anymore. Nonetheless, the comedic timing <laughs> is yeah. pronounced. Yeah, yeah. For more information on Eric Wargo, check the show notes. Reg Presley is known worldwide as the lead singer of the Trogs, whose hits Wild Thing and Love Is All Around have endured since the mid-60s. Presley, no relation to Elvis, was also widely known within ufological circles. He was an ardent researcher, author, and experiencer. His passion for the paranormal was sparked early. At age seven, Presley and his playmates came across a crop circle in Andover, and wandered into it. They began playing inside the enigmatic geometry etched into its folded crops. Much later, in 1990, Presley read of a new crop circle in the Sunday paper. He immediately went out to find it. Upon arrival, the sight captivated him. After years of research into the phenomenon, 
he asserted that the vast majority of crop circles were man-made, but a small percentage were truly inexplicable and bore exotic properties. He was a dowser, and one day, this craft weirdly converged with his crop circle research. Inspecting the inside of a fresh crop circle, he spotted a man with dowsing rods. Presley commandeered them and began pacing the interior of the formation. He observed that at half the radius of the formation, the divining rods crossed. Inversely, in the center, they opened. He repeated the process numerous times and found the response consistent with each iteration. He later reported learning that geese would change their flying formation in order to avoid flying over real crop circles, seeming to react to a disturbance in the magnetic field of the formation. He even went on to host his own TV show, The Reg Presley UFO Show, which reported on recent craft sightings and other anomalous incidents. He authored the book, Wild Things They Don't Tell Us, which investigated the tandem puzzles of UFOs and crop circles. But perhaps most notable was Presley's UFO sighting in the Vale of Pusey. He recounted the event, quote, I filmed a UFO crossing the valley. It was a light, the same brightness as a star, but it was going down in brightness and then up, very slowly, moving across the valley about three miles from me. All of a sudden, it came up five times brighter and changed to orange. It remained stationary there, no noise whatsoever. The next day, there was a crop formation just where this thing had stopped, a triangle shape with circles on the corners." End quote. Aliens and Artist is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one -on -one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, non-ordinary experiences, and transpersonal hypnotherapy. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session or check the show notes for a link. Greetings, terrestrial wonder spindles. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please go to stuartdavis.com and become a patron. Just click on the Patreon button, and in no time at all, I will have all the bail money an artist could want. They bend it, sink into a miniature can. Robin rods up in the back of a man He's licking his prongs It's shocking his tongue He wanted a charge It's making him numb He don't know see From fucking D.C. You get a body but it isn't the keeps And every night you gotta die in your sleep You'll be excarnated and still unaware The seat of your soul is playing musical chairs You don't get AC from Flux and DC Don't give me AC and say it's DC Which one will clutch me? Whatever DC, don't let it touch me.
starlight under the rugs. They keep doping the kids with these invisible drugs. They keep pumping the mud into the sockets and plugs. There's a dictator born each time a teenager shrugs. See. <laughs> 